Great, great, great to be with you this morning. Happy second week of Lent to those of you taking part of that. I know I hung with a couple of you throughout this last week who mentioned that they were giving something up for Lent and really focusing your thoughts and prayers around this time. Good for you. Just want to kind of fan that to flame and uh, celebrate that in you. It's good, good, good stuff. Hey, for six weeks leading up to Easter in this season of Lent, we have always paused in our Sunday experiences to study through the teachings of Jesus specifically. Not that we don't teach those teachings the rest of the year, but we really focus on what does it look like to be a people who walk the way of Christ? And this year's theme is following this idea of who Jesus is to us and with us and for us. Last week we talked about Jesus, our brother, and his teachings around him as our brother. Uh, Today we focus our attention around Jesus as our healer. And we'll be in Mark chapter 5. You can grab the QR code behind me if you want the full program for today. If you're using one of the paperbacks or scriptures you brought, you can go to Mark 5 and Uh, We're going to look at Jesus as our healer, and I'd like to, I I think it will help serve us in this time together today to begin with a question. And the question I would pose to you uh, that God has been mulling over my own soul since Monday when I first looked at the text for this week is, uh, when those closest to you pray for your healing, what do you think they pray God will heal? Now, I want to challenge you to think even beyond some of the obvious things, an an infirmity maybe that you carry, um, a bout of anxiety that may come up, a a simple cold or a flu, an illness, a, a bum knee. All of these things are meaningful and important and worthy of our prayers. Don't let me minimize those. But I want to, for the sake of, I think what Jesus would have for us to capture, at least in part from today's text, I'd like to push us maybe a little beyond that, or to use one of my favorite phrases over the last several years, to pull the trap door beneath what would be obvious to us on the surface. Again, let me drive home. What is obvious on the surface does not make it untrue or unimportant. I just, I think you don't need me for these 30 minutes for that, if, if I can just be so bold. Uh, but what I think I may be able to bring to us in these 30 minutes is to pull that trap door and say, beneath that, when the closest people to you in your life pray for your healing, and, and let me assure you that they do. I have every confidence partly because I'm close to a good many of you, if not all of you, and I pray for your healing. I pray that you're, well, I pray for your healing. When those people who pray for your healing pray for you, what do you think they pray God would heal? What do you think it is that they're praying for? What is it that they see in your life, in your body, in your emotions, your spiritual maturity, in your anger, in your cynicism? What do you think it is that those who love you see in you that they're praying you would experience healing from? And maybe a, a hopeful view on this healing 
mixed with a, a little desperation would show up as we direct our attention to Mark chapter 5 today. Would you pray with me? Oh, Jesus, we long to be a people who reflect your will and your way. Who, as Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, that you would find yourself at home in our hearts increasingly as we recognize the depth and breadth of your love. I'm fascinated, God, as I continue to follow you after all these years. That you never say that you will find yourself at home in our hearts when we realize how bad and sinful we are. Though we are probably those things. But you say over and over and over again, and you demonstrate with the way you interact with humanity over and over and over again in Scripture that you find yourself at home in the hearts of those who recognize the depth and breadth of your love. So may we experience that in these moments. And would you find our ears to be open and our hearts to be pliable to your will and to your way? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 5. Jesus is on a bit of a healing tour, if you will. Uh, And this chapter gives us a few rapid fire examples of that. And we pick up in verse 21. Jesus has gone across the lake in the boat and he arrives and says, Jesus got into the boat again and he went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. And then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her and heal her so she can live. Jesus went with him and all the people followed, crowding around him. And a woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal. I'm in verse 26. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors. And over the years, she'd spent everything she had to pay them. But she had gotten no better. In fact, she had actually gotten worse. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I could just touch his robe, I will be healed. And immediately, the bleeding stopped. And she could feel her body that she had been healed from her terrible condition. Now, now to set the stage here or to help us climb into the story with the sorts of eyes and minds that would have been in the story in that time, we have to spend a little bit of disciplined time to remove 21st century thinking from the story and certainly Western context from the story. So let's begin with Jairus, right? Jairus appears, Jesus has traveled to the other side of the lake and Jairus appears. And we know that from the text, Jairus is the leader of a local synagogue. Now, a quick little Google search would get you there or a 35-year-old commentary sitting on my shelf would get you there just the same that would indicate to us that being the leader of a local synagogue, he was most likely part of the Pharisaical crew. He was a Pharisee. 
Now, even a cursory knowledge of the ministry of Jesus and the opponents to his life and mission, the Pharisees were his opponents in so many ways. Now, they weren't the only ones, and I think that they get a bit worse of a rap than maybe they deserve sometimes. You know, it's like we all want a common enemy. So we, we you know, those evil Pharisees. And then we go, man, the Pharisees were like great compared to me. So um, I don't know about you. If you ever read in the Pharisees, you go, that's the worst they did. They're actually pretty decent dudes. Um, but I digress. I say all that to say this. Like Jairus comes up, leader of the local synagogue, known Pharisee, and I, I don't want to belabor the point too far, but I want to drive home this concept that everybody there would know who Jairus was. Remember, we're talking about a very, very small town. This is, this is not like walking around Palladio and running into somebody you know from the office, okay? This is like walking around your house and running into somebody you're related to. Do you, do you get, like, again, I mean... I didn't grow up in a really small town, and, and I've used the illustration before, but like I go to real small NAB towns where there's 200 people in 60 square miles. They know each other. And there's a great side to that. Like if your truck is broken, you know who to go to. You go to whoever. And, but there's also the sense that everybody knows everybody's business in town. And Jesus has been, at least in this region, his entire life. Everybody would have known Jairus. So when Jesus arrives in a boat, it stands to reason they see one of the Pharisees, a leader of a local synagogue, and they recognize a face-off is about to happen. Because this is what these guys do with Jesus. They argue with him. They debate things with him. Next time somebody tries to debate with you about religion, just Pharisee, you know? Because this, this was sort of their MO. Like, and Jesus arrives on the scene and he immediately is cutting their legs out from them, not simply to do that, but because he comes with real spiritual power. He comes with true compassionate presence. He comes with a healing hand, things that the Pharisees in the religious system would have only hoped to have delivered. And this is what Jesus delivers. He, he stands to threaten everything that they are and have. And so Jesus' boat arrives, and you can imagine the crowd clamoring to get Jesus' attention. They have to recognize Jairus is there in the midst. And then what does Jairus do? He falls to his knees in front of this guy who has challenged his whole system of being. And he falls to his knees and he goes, buddy, my daughter is so sick. You have to come heal her. Forget all these people. You've got to come with me and heal my daughter. Dads with daughters, I know there's a few of you around here. Like you just, there's, your daughter's sick. There's nothing you wouldn't do to heal your daughter. So this is kind of the, the context in which all of this happens. And they're, 
There must have been. I just can't believe there wasn't. I know it's just your friends do talking, but I climb into the story with as best first century eyes as I possibly can muster. And I, I can't imagine that the atmosphere didn't shift in that crowd when Jesus arrives and Jairus doesn't come at him with, you're wrong. Prove to me you have authority. Why do you heal on the Sabbath? No, he comes to him and says, will you heal my daughter? It had to shift everything. I really have maybe only one thing I want to say today. And in some sense, um, I just only have one thing I want to say today. That when the spiritual power and compassionate presence of Jesus collides with a person's humble desperation, healing is common. I know that's a mouthful but I think it's worthy of reflection that, that you have this Jesus who, who walks in spiritual power and yet also compassionate presence. What, what a change in that space and culture. I mean, they, they had seen spiritual power, right? You got Elijah taunting the other gods saying, well, I'm going to pose my firewood down with water and see how great my God is. Your gods are terrible. That's spiritual, but he has spiritual power. I mean, Elijah, you know, he's not going to win any awards for compassionate presence in that moment. Human through and through. But Jesus arrives both with spiritual power and with this compassionate presence. He does not say to Jairus, hey, before I come heal your daughter, we got to have a little talk here because you and your pals have been coming at me and you're really jamming me up. So. How about this? How about you go back and you write me a really good apology letter and then I'll go see you. Right? None of that. No, no, no sort of I told, oh, now you want me, huh? You didn't seem too interested in me two chapters ago. Right? I mean, imagine all the things that Jesus, if he wasn't fully God and fully you, imagine all the things Jesus could have said that we would have been like, well, that, you know, that kind of checks out. I mean, he just meets him with spiritual power and compassionate presence. But that collision is with a person who is humble and who is desperate. And we had, we had some really lively and really fun discussion as a leadership team Tuesday night when we studied the text. And I actually brought my notes uh, just because I, I just want to say a little word about our leadership around here, friends. Um, we're not a perfect church. Um, we're not a huge church. We don't have tons of this, that, or the other. But I tell you what you have. You have leaders who really love Jesus and really love you. Who pass on a lot of self-promoting, self-preserving tactics to care for you. And there were, I don't know, 12, 14 of us. There, it was less than 1,000 on Tuesday <laughs> um, that gathered. Um, and studied this text. And the insights from around that table just inspired me. Like we could have done a 30-week series on just the insights around the table. And as we studied that, we just kept coming back around on the incredible uniqueness of this moment. This idea that Jesus is walking through this crowd and 
uh, as best any of us could tell, and I did a quick research. I didn't go way down the hole, but a quick research. There's no other time that any of us could recount where Jesus heals sort of unwillingly. I use that word in a provocative manner on purpose. Like not that he was not willing, but he didn't say to her, daughter, be healed. Like she just thought, if I could just touch Jesus, surely I'll get healed. Should be maybe a little helpful fill in the blank in your own life. Uh, if I could just, then God would. He doesn't lead with some sort of be healed kind of declaration. And this is the only time in the ministry of Jesus this, this happens. And I think it's important. And I think it's trying to tell us something, at least something, maybe many things. That if I could just, Touch his robe, I'll be healed. Verse 28. What is it? Like, is this confidence? Like, is she so theologically squared away that she's, she's aligned all the things and knows that, okay, Jesus is here. He's compassionately present. Wow, this moment just happened with Jairus. That's incredible. He's already, like, he's in the healing mood. So that's good. That, that bodes well for me because he's already going to heal. And like, he's got power in him. And so if I could just touch his robe, not his sandal. Why his robe? I don't know. If I could just touch his robe, then surely I'll be healed. What is that? What is that in her? Because I think some people would call that delusion. Well, one of the many things we talked about as a leadership team on Tuesday, which we didn't come to any conclusions on, but it was a, a delightful conversation. Like, what's the difference between desperation and delusion? And I don't mean it like in an English syntax way. I mean like, what's the actual lived experience that differs when we're desperate versus delusional? I don't want to be delusional. Unless I'm looking in the mirror and then I'm often delusional. <laughs> but Jesus says it's faith. I mean, his claim to her in here is that your faith has made you well, remember? So what's that all about, right? Because in verse 30, Jesus realizes that once the healing power had gone out from him, and so he, he turns around to the crowd and he asks, wait, 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 who touched my robe? He felt a yank or what, he felt the, the power go out of him, the text says. And he keeps looking around to see who had done it. And then the frightened woman is trembling. And so there's some sense like her faith has made her well, but the, it, it can't be complete confidence because the power's gone out and, and you get the sense, I get the sense anyway, that she feels like she's misbehaved a little bit, right? Because she's fearful and trembling, like, oh, I did a bad thing. Like you're supposed to ask him first or, you know, whatever. I mean, it didn't stop her. But now she's busted, caught red-handed and, Oh man, I better fess up, right? And so she does. She fesses up. And he says to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. Uh, let us not lose sight of the humility at work in the story on multiple levels. The humility with which people 
approach Jesus. And this may be the thing that for us, so much of our lives, we come to Jesus with this powerful confidence. My God is king. He wins everything. I know the end of the story. He's going to do for me. And that may all be like theologically true, but where's the humility? And that's just the sermon I give to my mirror when I look at it. This is Jesus, right? Responding to a person in deep need with compassion and with power. Like I think back to the Samaritan woman at the well, right? And he talks about being there in spirit and in truth. And here in this text, we see him arrive with compassion and with power. Like Jesus gets these combos so perfectly beautiful in ways that would cause anybody to scratch their head and say to this young rabbi, he is different. Something's different about this guy. And then the compassion is further demonstrated by how Jesus reacts in the home of Jairus. But, but even before we get to the, the house of Jairus, I, I just submit to you a musing that's been bouncing around my head that I remember a time and it was really popularized, this saying that um, something along the lines of integrity is doing the right thing when nobody else is looking. Did I get that like in the ballpark at least? I, I looked for it, I couldn't find it, but I, I remember like my mom telling me that as a kid. And I remember, you know, we used to do assemblies in school about that. Do you still do the integrity of somebody? Okay, great. Um, we did like the integrity, and it was like some version of integrity is doing what's right when no one else is looking. And I think that's wonderful. Don't, don't freak out. I'm not going to like try and burst your bubble on that. I think that's a wonderful thing. But Jesus brings something even altogether different, which is uh, my best description is holiness which is doing what's right when you're not even trying. See, because Jesus is just walking in rightness. He's just walking in fellowship with the Father. And he doesn't even have to try and he's healing people. He doesn't even have to, have you ever uttered that I'm just trying to be more like Jesus? Me too. I mean, I think effort is key in this, but Holiness is what happens when all of that effort has parlayed into actually changing who we are. Stu, stop saying that. I'm so sick of hearing it. Well, except for Jesus said it for like his entire ministry. It's all he ever said. Verse 35. While he was still speaking to her, the woman, he's just healed accidentally. While still speaking to her, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus and the, the leader of the synagogue, reminding us yet again who he is, right? And they told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith. Which is what he just told the lady. So, I mean, there has to be some connection here, friends, of like, hey, Jairus, don't be like your buddy, be like her. I 
And then Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. And he went inside and he asked, why all the commotion and weeping? This child isn't dead. She's only asleep. And the crowd laughed at him. But he made them all leave. And he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. And holding her hand, he said to her, I'm not even going to try. Um, which means, thank you, translators. Uh, little girl, get up. And the girl who was 12 years old immediately stood up and walked around, exclamation point. And they were overwhelmed and totally amazed. And, and, and here's, here's part of the crux of what's going on, or at least part of the crux of what I want to point out today. This last verse. Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone. You see, Jesus is not healing to build his platform. Jesus is not healing to try to buy himself credibility. Jesus is not healing to prove to the doubters or the haters or the Pharisees or his disciples that he was worthy of the authority that they should ascribe to him. Jesus was healing because it's just who he was. Jesus is healing because he's just a healer. <laughs> and, and it's like as if in that moment he says, this is just for us. And I wouldn't presume or be so arrogant as to say I know what that's all about, but I think at least part of it is, listen, you're not going to be defined by your illness. So this, this day, I've healed you, and now you move on. But in all of that, as we round third base here, there's a myth that's embedded into the thinking on this text for a lot of us. Certainly for me in years past, and even at times it rears its ugly head to this day. And, and if it's not a myth in your life, it probably at least could benefit you to clarify what is often misunderstood aspect of Jesus's healing ministry. That when it's misunderstood, tends to affect everything in our life, especially our spiritual transformation, our maturity in Christ. That to some extent, our thinking on how God heals has a pretty direct impact on how we believe he transforms. This is a similar concept to, if you've ever thought the question, I know I have, or been asked the question, why even read Revelation? It's just all a bunch of garbly gook for the end times that nobody understands. And, and what, what bearing does it have on our life? Well, it has a significant bearing on our life because how we believe Jesus walks in victory says a lot about how we walk with him now. What that is not intended to mean is you got to go find a position paper on whatever, you know, and you got, okay, well, on that thing, I'm going to take this position and that one I'll take, my, and then I'll walk around and I'll be a pre this and a post that and an ah that. That's not the point. That, that's like such a colossal waste of time. But this idea of like, 
how Jesus heals does in fact impact our spiritual transformation. And so here's, here's the myth. The myth is simply this, that God just heals and we have no part of it. And if we do have a part of it, the only part that we have is getting, and I do in quotes, holy so our sin doesn't block our healing. That we view healing as this kind of randomized thing that God does. And well, he, he did heal that person, but he hasn't healed me. And so the only thing that, we play a role in is getting holy in order for God to not be blocked through our sin. So we can be tempted to stand by and just kind of wait for God to heal. Or worse yet, much worse yet, demand he do so because we have demonstrated such great faith. And part of the trouble there is how we all define faith is quite different. And for most of us, most of the time, the way we define faith is some version of, I believe God has the power and desire to do so. That that somehow is the definition of faith. And like so many things in life, this is really only off by just a few degrees. <laughs> It's like so close. You know, and it's, I'm not a mathematician or by any stretch of any imagination. I, I think I'm going to do geometry here. That's how bad I am at math. But like you can just be off just a couple of degrees, but then you spin that out about seven or eight years and those couple of degrees end up being a mile apart, right? And so we, we, can, we can enter our Christian maturity or our life with Christ just a couple degrees off thinking, well, well, God will just heal when he feels like it or when the, the timing's right. So my part of that is I just got to get holier so that my sin doesn't block so that when I pray, he'll hear my prayers and then he'll heal me when he feels like it. But the problem is that does create quite a separation over time. You see, the, the common thread here in the healings that we see in Mark chapter 5 and, and elsewhere in the ministry of Christ are a person full of humility and desperation, welcoming the power and presence of Jesus. Humility and desperation, welcoming the power and presence of Jesus. And this is... The same with our spiritual transformation. Do we, do we arrive at our spiritual transformation with humility? I know I only gave you a moment to think about it from the outset. But when the people who love you in your life pray for your healing, what do you think they pray for? And I get that I only gave you a minute and I had all week but my list was really long. And I know what my mama prays for that I would get healed from. I'm not telling you. And I guarantee I know what Jen prays for because she sees me intimately. And yeah, they'll pray for me if I catch a cold or if, you know, I've got a sore back. And again, those things aren't unimportant. They are important. They matter. 
But I'll tell you what, I, I know that they pray for some deeper things that would get healed in me. What a shame it would have been if that woman had walked through that town square not recognizing she had been bleeding for 12 years. What insanity it would have been for her to have believed that was normal. What's been broken in you for 12 years that you just walk around with as if, well, everybody's broken this way, so. What is it you carry? For how long have you covered your arrogance by saying you're just the smartest guy in the room? For how long have you explained away your anger by saying I'm frustrated? For how long have you given way to your own contempt because you had a rough childhood that treated you poorly? For how long have you given yourself permission to seek esteem over and over and over again because someone didn't love you? For how long has your central focus in life been self-preservation because you don't feel safe? These are just a short list of just the things I think my wife prays for, for me. I don't know what your things are. But what a shame it would be for us to walk through the city square where Jesus is present and healing all the time and not even recognize how in need we are of his healing touch. And to come to him with humility and say, boy, I think, I think, it's, I think it's time for this to start getting healed in my life. I've been carrying this too long. You see, these things don't just happen, right? Yes, Jesus stands ready with the power and the presence to heal, but our part in that cooperating is at least to meet him in his power and his presence with our own humble desperation. And a final word and just a reminder and to drive it home as clearly as I know how to do, this is not about earning the right to a hearing with the Almighty. You don't have to earn a right to have a hearing with him. Hebrews tells us clearly that we're met with mercy and grace when we come into the courts of the king. This is the pursuit of cultivating transformation in our lives. And so I'm going to invite the band to join me up front. And we're going to sing a closing song and uh, give you just a moment of reflection as you wrap up the day. Um, some years back, uh, if you've been with us a long time, you know that at the end of each service, we used to have a couple people up front here and we would, we would pray for you. And um, truth be told, during COVID, it went away because we went online and tried our best. Um, and then it just never came back. And somebody recently around the leadership table said, hey, you know, why don't we pray for people in service? And we said, because of COVID. And we thought, it's, it's probably time to stop blaming COVID for um, everything. Um, I think the statute of limitations on blaming COVID has probably run out by now. And so um, we just long to pray for you. So maybe there's something that came to your mind today that you know God wants to do some work on in you, in a healing work. Now, I'm going to be in the back, and I know... Another leader or two will join me and be floating around the back. We'd love to pray with you. If you'd like somebody to pray with, we'd like to pray for 
Jesus's healing presence to be with you this week. So we're going to sing a closing song and uh, then Ash will come wrap us up. And in the meantime, we'll be back there ready to pray for you if you'd like prayer. God bless you, friends. Love you. Love you, love you.